will be light them to all mankind. Thanks, Damien. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Gene, if we haven't met, and it's my privilege today to speak on Isaiah chapter 66. Uh, this is my first time preaching live at church. Um, I had a go at preaching last year, but it was in the middle of lockdown, so I was preaching to a camera. Uh, so this is kind of a nice and refreshing change, I have to say. Um, so please pray with me as we begin today. Almighty Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word and that we can come before you now to listen. Thank you that in your word you give us comfort and encouragement, but you also give us warnings and instruction. Help me now to speak your words and not mine and to do so clearly. And help us all to pay attention to your words and live according to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Our world is full of divisions. Some of those divisions are trivial, like whether you shower in the morning or in the evening, uh, whether you have an Apple or Android phone, or whether you fold or scrunch your toilet paper. I'm going to put another uh, example of a trivial division onto the slide now. Um, you might remember this image from the year 2015. Now, I want you guys to put up your hands if you see up there a white and gold dress. Can you put up your hand if you see a white and gold dress? Okay, thank you. Yep, put, put your hands down. Now, put up your hand if you see a blue and black dress. Wow, okay, okay that's, that's a bigger majority than I expected, but that's fine, thank you. So, uh, if you remember this, this image divided the world. Um, half the world saw a white and gold dress, and the other half swore black and blue that they saw, well, a black and blue dress. I mean, this is, you can put that down now, thank you. Um, I mean, this is just another example of something trivial that divided the world, right? But there are much more serious divisions in our world as well. I wonder if you've ever been the target of racism before. I count myself lucky not to have experienced any serious racism, but I think I'm actually in the minority of Asian Australians when it comes to that, especially since COVID broke out. You might remember early on in the pandemic, uh, there were two female Chinese international students who were uh, assaulted by two Caucasian Australian women. Uh, it was an unprovoked attack. Uh, the, the students were confronted. They were verbally abused. They were told to go back to China, and then they were physically attacked. And one of them was dragged to the ground while she was punched and kicked by her assailant. How do stories like that make you feel? As a Chinese Australian, it makes me angry that there are people who try to make me feel like I don't belong in my own country out of their own selfishness, ignorance and fear. Even in multicultural Australia where society seems so accepting and tolerant, deep down we are really, really divided. It just takes the right conditions for those divisions to rear their ugly heads. But what does God have to say about the divisions in our world? Is God a God of division and separation? Or is he a God of connectedness and unity? Uh, as we've said, this is the last week of our series on Isaiah, and we're looking at the second half of the last chapter, Isaiah 66. And here Isaiah paints the picture of God's final judgment. And he brings together two themes that have run through the whole book, judgment and hope. And as we look at the end of this world, we see that God is not like us. God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. God is both a God who divides and a God who unites. At the final judgment, God divides his people from his enemies, but he unites everyone who follows him. 
We have three main points today. God's final judgment will bring comfort to his people. God's final judgment will bring destruction on his enemies. And God's final judgment will bring together people from all nations. So come with me to our first point, that God's final judgment will bring comfort to his people. Now, you might recall from the series and from your own reading of Isaiah that the book goes through cycles of sin, judgment, grace, and hope. And those themes run through the whole book. But uh, chapters 1 to 35 are particularly heavy on judgment. As the people of Judah, God's chosen people, face the threat of Assyrian invasion. From chapter 40 onwards, though, Isaiah is actually speaking into the future, to a time about 100 years later, after God's people have been crushed by another empire, the Babylonian Empire, and God's people are now in exile. And you might remember how Isaiah chapter 40 begins. Chapter 40, verse 1, starts with these words. Comfort, comfort my people. And in this final part of the final chapter of Isaiah, he returns again to this theme of comfort. Come with me to verse 12. For this is what the Lord says. I will extend peace to her like a river, and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice, and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants. Now, keep in mind, again, these events haven't happened yet at the time of Isaiah's writing. He is speaking into the future about events that are yet to happen, events that did eventually happen. But imagine being one of God's exiled people and reading these words. Listen again to what God promises in verse 12. Peace like a river. To a people torn apart and torn away from their home by war and invasion, God promises peace flowing in like a river. Also in verse 12, the wealth of nations, to a people stripped of their possessions, their wealth plundered by another nation, God promises abundant wealth like a flood streaming in from all nations. And then verse 13, comfort. The same word is repeated three times in the same verse. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. To a people who have suffered God's judgment because of their sin, whose capital city, Jerusalem, and its temple have been destroyed, God promises them comfort. But look at the way that God comforts his people. It's the image of a mother comforting her child, of being nursed, of being carried, being bounced on the mother's lap. God doesn't just give them all their stuff back and walk away. God does more than that. His comfort is personal, tender, and intimate. One of the greatest joys I've had is the joy of becoming a dad. Um, Now, uh, many of you know Anna and my son Levi, who's at the back making a lot of noise right now. Um, uh, Parenting isn't easy, uh, as I'm sure all parents here would agree with me, Um, but nothing fills my heart more with warmth and pride than seeing Levi grow up, um, learn new things, laugh and smile. Um, It really is wonderful. Um, But part of the the joy of fatherhood has also been seeing Anna flourish as a mum. Uh, It's been really wonderful seeing her take on the role of being Levi's mum, caring for him, playing with him, um, organising activities with him, making food for him, uh, and that's all at great cost to herself. Um, She's taken a lot of time off work, um, she's chronically sleep-deprived, and of course there's the um, frustrations, uh, the worries and the tears that come with just being a parent. But one of the amazing things about Anna being Levi's mum is that she can comfort him in ways that I simply can't. 
uh, as much as I can try to settle him when he wakes up overnight, um, you know, I can, I can shush him, I can stroke him, I can bounce him, I can, I can let him lay on my chest. Uh, there'll, be, there'll be some nights where it's four o'clock in the morning, Levi is wide awake, he's screaming, he's crying. Um, I'll have him on my chest and he'll be wriggling off my chest and reaching over to poor Anna next to me, who's trying to sleep, and he just wants a cuddle with mummy. And Anna will turn over, take Levi in her arms, and rest him on her chest. And sure enough, he'll settle back down and eventually doze back off to sleep. Although some nights it's a matter of time before the whole cycle just repeats itself again <laughs> after a while. But, but, but you see, that's the kind of comfort that God offers us uh, in, in this passage. God is not distant to us. He is near to us and he brings us close to him in comfort. And that's not all. Uh, unlike us comforting Levi when he wakes up overnight, the promise of God's comfort is everlasting. Look at verse 22 with me. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. God isn't just talking about restoring the exiled people of Judah back to their homeland in this passage, which does happen over the next 150 years or so. What God has planned here is much bigger. He's talking about the comfort all of his people will receive in the new creation after his final judgment. What he's talking about is what we saw in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 8, which was our other Bible reading today. There's a new heaven and a new earth. A new Jerusalem, beautifully presented, like a bride ready for her husband. And God himself will dwell with us there. God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And in this new creation, there will be no more death, no more mourning, or crying, or pain. And it will last forever. This is the comfort that God promises his people at the final judgment. And this comfort and these blessings are yours if you are one of God's people, if you follow Jesus. Uh, there will be some of us here today who call ourselves Christians, uh, who, are, who are hurting, who are struggling, uh, or we just don't feel like we're good enough for God. And if that's not you right now, um, be thankful. Um, but also know that it will probably happen to you sometime in the future. Because this world that we live in, is, it's fractured, it's frayed, and it's coming to an end. Whether it's, whether it's grief, or sadness, or sickness, pain, trauma, conflict, loneliness, financial stress, mental health struggles. God in Isaiah invites us to look beyond those things, to look beyond ourselves and our struggles in this world, to the new creation, and to find comfort. Because we know that Jesus lived and died for you and me to secure our eternity. He took on pain and suffering so that we can enjoy eternal life without pain and suffering in the new creation with God. Now you might say, I know that, but I still find it hard to feel God's comfort. Let me say two things. One, I get it. Life can be really hard and some of us will go through really, really awful things. And because we're imperfect here and now in this world, uh, even as Christians, we're not always going to feel joyous and comforted when things are just really hard. But that doesn't mean we can't seek out God's comfort. The second thing is a practical one. Pray through scripture. 
God comforts us as a mother to a child, so draw near to him as a child does to a mother. Draw near by listening to his words in scripture and talking to him in prayer. And pray through the words of the passage. If you're struggling to feel God's comfort amidst the sufferings of this world, there is no better way to look beyond this world and to focus on God. Sit down. Open your Bible to a passage like Isaiah 66 or Revelation 21 or to one of the Psalms. Read it. Close, close your eyes even and let your mind and imagination be filled by all the images from the passage. And then pray. Pray using the words in the passage. Pray for its truths to fill your mind, for God's comfort to overcome your heart, and pray for his kingdom to come. God's final judgment will bring comfort to his people. If you are a follower of Jesus, the comfort of eternal life is guaranteed to you, no matter what you are going through right now. That takes us to our second point. And here we see how God divides people because we see that God's judgment will bring destruction on his enemies. Verse 14 is a turning point here. God shows his power in blessings to his servants, but his power will be shown in his fury to his foes. Look at the imagery in these verses from verse 15. See, the Lord is coming with fire. His chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with the sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people, and many will be those slain by the Lord. God here is scary. He is the righteous and holy judge, and he is angry at his enemies. And verse 17 goes on to describe some of these people uh, engaging in pagan worship, trying to make themselves holy without God. For God's enemies, God is coming with fire, wind, and sword, bringing death and destruction. If you have trouble imagining these verses, um, let me tell you a story. Um, it's the 18th of January, 2003. Uh, Tom Bates, who lived on the southwestern edge of Canberra, stands overlooking his city. It is a scene of devastation and carnage. His city is up in flames. Over the last 10 days, fires that had started in New South Wales had rapidly spread closer and closer to Canberra, and by that morning, it was at the doorstep. It was a hot dry and windy day, the recipe for disaster. Now, Tom was lucky. He was, he was far enough to be safe, but he stood watching as the blaze ripped through his city. And like any sensible person living in the 21st century, he caught it on camera. Uh, and you, you can actually watch this on YouTube. Um, it, it's night, but the sky is red. Uh, you can see a wall of flame advancing over this hill. And then, caught on camera for the first time in history, emerges a fire tornado. It's this swirl, a vortex of flame and smoke. And, and in, in a flash, you see an area the size of Macquarie University instantly burst into flame from the intense heat and blistering winds. It's, it's a scary, scary sight to behold. Uh, and if you, look, warning, if you decide to watch this video, there is some strong language here. Um, but Tom's reaction is genuine. He is terrified and in awe of what he is seeing. The Canberra bushfires of 2003 with fire, with wind, with death and destruction, are just a small hint of what God's fury is like. And that's not all. Uh, come with me to verse 24. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. 
This judgment is never ending. And the imagery, it's, it's gruesome. It makes you almost feel sick as you read it. It's, it's violent, it's horrifying, and everyone will see the fate of God's enemies. Why does Isaiah end the book with this verse? Why? I think it's because it's a warning. God is dividing between those who are for him and those who are against him. And he warns us not to be on the wrong side of his final judgment. Now, if you're anything like me, these verses may not sit well with you. Uh, You might be thinking, I don't like the idea of a God who judges violently. And if that's you, I understand. But respectfully, let me ask you this question. What would you have God, the rightful creator and ruler of everything, do with people who reject him? Do you expect him to love and forgive them? Now, we might expect God to be sympathetic and forgive the person who steals to feed his family. But what would you have God do with a person who robs a bank at gunpoint? Or to the gunman in a school shooting? Or to the dictator responsible for the death of millions of people to achieve his own selfish ambitions? We want God to be loving and to forgive everyone. But if we think about it, if we're honest with ourselves, we need a God who judges evil. A God who freely loves and forgives everyone is not actually a loving God at all. A loving God needs to righteously repay and deal with evil. Now you might think, uh, okay, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. Uh, I think God's judgment is too harsh. But you see, when the Bible talks about sin, it's it's not just doing bad things. The essence of sin is not rule breaking, but rulemaking. It's about us wanting to do things our own way and not caring about what God thinks. We personally reject God, who is our creator and rightful ruler. It doesn't actually matter if you're a mass murderer or a quiet and mostly law-abiding citizen. Because all of us naturally want to live our own way, we reject God's rule over us. And the consequence of that, well, that comes down to who we're rejecting. If we're rejecting the all-powerful God, creator and sustainer of all life, and the source of all things good, then we are rejecting life and all good things. We can expect nothing but the opposite, which is death and destruction. Now, your next thought may be, but surely if God is all-powerful, he can still find a way to forgive me. Well, the answer to that is actually yes, he has. God has done everything to forgive us. God gave us Jesus, his son, God in the flesh, to willingly die in our place. When Jesus died on the cross, the wind and the flames of God's fury that we deserve for rejecting him fell on Jesus. God is a God of justice, but God is also a God of amazing love. He is a God who suffered death and destruction himself to bring us forgiveness and reconciliation with him. And all we need to do is repent. Acknowledge and confess to God that we have lived our own way and rejected him, ask for forgiveness, and turn our lives around to follow him. If we repent, we can be sure that God accepts us and forgives us, and we become his people with a hope of eternal comfort. So to bring us back to our passage, if you haven't yet repented and turned back to God, Isaiah is God's warning to you today. A warning of a righteous judge who comes in fury against his enemies. But it's a warning with hope. 
because the same God of justice is also a God of amazing love who has taken that fury on himself in the person of Jesus for those who repent and turn back to him. If that's you, do something about it today. Come talk to me, talk to Hans, or, uh, or, or to the person who invited you to church today. At, God's judge, uh, at the final judgment, God will bring destruction on his enemies, but he also invites us to no longer be his enemy, but to be one of his people. Do something about that today. In our first two points, we've seen how God divides people. At his final judgment, he divides between his people and his enemies. His people receive eternal comfort, and his enemies receive eternal destruction. In our final point, we see how God unites people. So far, we've looked at the verses at the beginning and at the end of our passage, which talk about God's comfort and his judgment. And then sandwiched between those sections is verses 18 to 21. And here, we see a magnificent picture of the people in God's new creation. Read verse 18 with me. And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of them who survived to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations, and they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord, on horses, in chariots and wagons, and on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them, as the Israelites bring their grain offerings, to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels, and I will select some of them also, to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. The countries listed here, for the readers back then, they represented the corners of the known world and beyond. God is sending out his people to every nation in the world, proclaiming his glory. And people of all races, colors, and dialects are coming in droves to worship God in his holy city. It's an incredible image of the whole world gathered before God who is at the center. But it's not just incredible, it would also have been controversial and even offensive to a Jewish person reading this text when it was written. Why is that? Well, read verse 21 again. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. Not just anyone could be a priest in the Old Testament. It was a privilege and responsibility only given to the Israelite tribe of Levi. The idea that anyone could be a priest, let alone a non-Jew, would have been ridiculous and downright offensive. Yet the text here in Isaiah is plain and clear that people of all nations will have the opportunity to be priests of God in his new creation. And this is consistent with God's plan throughout the whole Bible. From the very beginning, God's promise to Abraham was threefold. He would have many descendants, he would have land for his people, and that he would be a blessing to all nations. Even though Israel was God's chosen people, God's plan was always to include everyone from all over the world in his kingdom. And we can see this work today, right here. All you need to do is look around here at church. Isn't it amazing the diversity that we have at Marsfield Community Church? Uh, there are people here with heritage from, from China, from Hong Kong, from Singapore, from Malaysia, Korea, Japan, the Philippines, Sri Lanka, Cyprus, the Czech Republic, Denmark, Nigeria, and I'm sure there are heaps of others that I've missed. 
That's not every nation, but that's pretty diverse for quite a small church. We ought to celebrate our diversity because it's a testament to God carrying out his plan to bring together people of all nations under him. But his work is not yet complete, and it won't be until Jesus returns. And until that happens, as God's people, we're part of that ongoing work. We are those people going out to the nations to proclaim God's glory and bring people back to him. If you're a regular member of Marsfield Community Church, let me ask you this. Are you committed to seeing God's work, sorry, are you committed to God's work of seeing people from all nations come to him? If you've experienced the love of God who suffers in our place to save us from eternal destruction and bring us into eternal joy and comfort, don't you want everyone else to experience that too? So how can we get on board with this? Well, we are blessed with living in an incredibly and increasingly multicultural city. We have people from almost every nation right here as our literal neighbours. One way I think, uh, I think we can get involved in mission here in Sydney is simply just to get involved in the community. Pick one social activity where you can meet other people and commit to it for a period, just one activity, and use that as an opportunity to get to know people. And as they get to know you, share with them the hope that you have in Jesus. Now, what that might be depends on your life stage. Uh, if you have spare time and energy because you're single or you don't have kids yet, uh, or if your kids are grown up, um, why not play some social sport? Or uh, go to your Friday night drinks after work and hang out with your work colleagues. Maybe you have young kids, uh, bring them to playgroup, uh, even the one here at church on Thursday mornings, and, and chat with the families that don't usually attend church. Or if you have school-aged kids, um, get involved in the school community. Uh, volunteer at the canteen, uh, sign up your kids for extracurricular activities, um, sport, music, dance, whatever it is, uh, and get to talk to the other parents. Um, you may as well, because you're waiting around for them to finish anyway, right? Uh, and if, if you're retired, um, perhaps you can volunteer at, at your local school or a hospital or a community center. Uh, these are all great ways to get involved. Be creative, pick something you enjoy. It's much easier building relationships with people you already have something in common with. But the more connections we have with our community, the more opportunities we have to proclaim God's glory to people who don't yet know him. And working through us by his Holy Spirit, God will bring to completion his plan to bring together people of all nations under him. So let me wrap up. We started today by asking the question of whether God is a God of division or of unity. And we've seen in these last verses of Isaiah, which sums up the major themes of the whole book, in the picture of God's final judgment, that God is both. When he comes in judgment, God divides people based on their standing before him. Blessings and comfort forever to his people and eternal destruction to his enemies. But God is also bringing together people of all nations before him. He unites all people who follow Jesus as Lord and he invites everyone into this glorious community. So where do you stand before God? If you stand opposed to God, Isaiah warns you that you face eternal destruction. But God in his kindness has made it so easy for us to turn around and make things right with him because Jesus has died for us. And if you stand with God, Isaiah offers you comfort in your eternal security 
and God invites us to be part of his mission to bring in people from all nations to worship him in his new creation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the righteous judge and that you deal with evil in our world. But we also thank you that you are loving beyond our imagination, giving your son Jesus to die for us, taking away the punishment we deserve so that we can be right with you. We pray for those here who do not call you Lord yet. May they heed your warning and take up your invitation to turn around and repent and so enjoy your eternal blessings. May we who follow Jesus take comfort in our secure eternity. Help us in our grief and struggles to look beyond this world to you and to find comfort. And help us to consider how we can be proclaiming your glory to our world to bring in more and more people of all nations into your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand and let's sing as we look forward to Jesus coming.